Good afternoon, everybody. So for the next hour, I have your attention on professional liability and cyber insurance. I'll try to keep this as exciting as possible. Um, I know uh, insurance is not everybody's favorite topic, but nonetheless, it's very important to understand and have, obviously. If you do have questions throughout, I will be checking the Q&A at different times. So if it's a burning question that jumps up on a slide, that you need to ask, feel free. Otherwise, I may just grab a few questions, answer them at different times. So we'll, we'll kind of go along of that pace at that point. So as mentioned, Greg Cook here, my um, title is, is Vice President at USI Affinity. I specifically work with law firms on their professional liability, cyber insurance, and also employment practices liability. So the law firms is solely what I work on. If you ask me a question, you know, to handle something with an accounting firm or a doctor, I would I, I would know how to read a policy, um, but that is not my specialty. Law firms and everyone attending this segment is my individual practice. Okay, so I'm just going to quickly run through agenda. So we're going to talk the first half about professional liability insurance, all these different topics, the policy itself, how is it different. What does it mean? Who's insured? I'll touch on COVID-19 and impacts to the, the malpractice insurance and what we expect. You may agree or disagree with some of our opinions with that, but we'll go through that and then um, finish up with the appropriate coverage, carrier, things of that sort. The second half is regarding cyber liability insurance. One of the hottest topics in the industry right now with everybody, quite frankly, um, just cyber attacks in general. So cyber insurance has grown dramatically over the last five years, exponentially in just probably the last two years. So obviously we will touch on that. You know, what is it? I'll go through some claim statistics, um, you know, some of the gaps, drivers with it, what the market looks like, you know, and then how I believe that USI and myself can help anyone that has specific questions to it. All right, so let's dive right in. We're five minutes in. So now, again, we're circling back. This is specific to professional liability insurance, okay? So I want to I want to hit right away with different claims that we see in the industry because I always get calls with regards to it. You know, hey, my colleague pays X and X, you know, this much. It's a couple thousand dollars less than me. Why is that, et cetera, et cetera. Well, these are the reasons why. No law firm is exactly the same, right? Even if you're handling different, or excuse me, even if you're handling the same areas of practice, you may be handling different values. Somebody, your colleague may have had a claim that they didn't want to tell you about. Um, they might have another attorney, right? All those change the rates, but a lot of it is based off of your areas of practice. So just like we're used to with car insurance, if you live in a city or an area that has high insurance rates, it's unfortunately due to other people's sins. Same situation here. The claims don't lie. So here is a chart of areas of practice that we see claims. Keep in mind, this is specific to frequency of claims, not severity. Okay, so frequency is the amount of claims that we're seeing in these particular areas. Severity would be obviously the size, the payout that a carrier is paying. If we did a severity chart, which I don't have in here, 
this would look significantly different, right? You would see environmental, you'd see intellectual property, you would see um, entertainment. Those would be higher severity because they're higher dollar values, larger lawsuits. Okay, so just keep that in mind. So what you'll see here is number one, unfortunately, for anyone who is a real estate attorney on this call or on this webinar, real estate is still a, a hot one. It's been in the top five, top three ever since the real estate bubble. Unfortunately, anyone that lost money in that real estate bubble turned to their attorney and sued them for malpractice insurance. Whether it was right or not, it still needed to be defended. There was claims. Family law has been, uh, uh, takes the cake at number two. That always is in the top five, top three as well. So we have seen an increase in that over the last couple of years. You'll see WTE, that stands for wills, trusts, and estate at 12%. I can tell you that number is going to look higher after the next report that comes out. So that has taken a significant rise over the last couple of years. The big reason for that is a couple of things. Number one, we're seeing the largest transfer of wealth that our country has ever seen, right? All the baby boomers that have money, there's a lot of them, they're passing it down to their children. And unfortunately, there's a lot of split and broken families. So that money is being dispersed to certain families, uh, to different families, or maybe one, the, the, you know, the family that they might have um, you know, started with a, a new wife or husband. And you know, the, the previous family is suing that individual who died. And unfortunately, they are not alive to defend their decision on you know, what that estate looked like. So seeing a lot of those claims over the last couple of years, and like I said, when this study comes out again, they do this every five years. This is the most recent that we have. This dates back, I mean, we're dating ourselves about a year now, um, but the stats are not going to be significantly different other than wills, estate, and trust work, okay? And then just real quick, a touch on it, plaintiff, personal injury work, that actually fell behind a little bit, but that's always a top one for you know, numerous different reasons, as I'm sure everybody can understand that. This is an important slide because you'll see here, again, based on frequency of, of claims by size of firm, okay? So one to five attorney firms make up 66% of claims that are reported. Just think about that. One to five attorney firms make up 66% of claims that are reported. You might be thinking, wow, but here's the thing, it comes with the territory. We estimate about 75, maybe a little bit more of law firms are small law firms. So it kind of proportionally follows suit there. And again, this is frequency of claims, this isn't severity. So if we flip that around, severity, that 100 plus attorney firm, 40 to 99 would be in, in a, um, would take the cake here. It would be take up a big, bigger portion of that pie and I can attest because I do work with some larger firms and I've seen, you know, multi-million dollar paid claims for some of those bigger firms. I'm not going to touch on this one too much, but um, by type of, of error, right? So it's kind of scattered all over the place, but, you know, most of the time it's, it's the preparation filing of documents, transmittal of documents. And then one last slide here with regards to statistics you'll see by type of alleged error, okay? 
Um, so substantive error is 54%. What does that mean? That basically in a nutshell means simply not knowing the law. You made a mistake somewhere, whether it, it fell with you know, statute of limitation or something, filings that you needed to make on a timely basis and didn't hit that because you weren't familiar with that type of practice or all the rules that came with it, that is where that falls. So a carrier, and I'll talk, touch on this later on, but a carrier knows these statistics and they're not big fans of firms that they would consider that dabble in different areas of practice. So if you're a three attorney firm and you work on 20 different areas of practice, they view you as a higher risk to have a potential claim because they think to themselves, how do three attorneys know the law of 20 different areas of practice? And again, they're going circling back to, because they're not questioning your ability to know that, they're circling back to these claim statistics that they have in hand, showing them proof that claims arise out of firms that dabble in different areas of practice that they don't typically specialize in. Kind of like I mentioned before, I specialize in law firms in a couple of different types of insurance. If you ask me about your employee benefits or health benefits for your law firm, again, I'd understand how to read the policy, but I would have no business in giving you advice on what to do with that type of coverage. But if you ask me about professional liability, I can walk you through it and show you everything you need to know with it. All right, so let's, let's continue. So this is a big one here. Um, what type of policy is your professional liability? So this is so this is where you know rubber hits the road with what's the difference between this type of coverage versus other types of insurance. So what we're used to is our home and auto policies, right? Um, the Geico progressives of the world that you know make it simple to get quotes, and um, you know you don't you know, sadly probably don't put much thought into that because a lot of them are providing similar coverages. The difference between that policy, what's known as occurrence-based. So, you know, if you have to file a claim, let's say a tree fell on your house, hit your roof, broke a window, that happened on occurrence right then and there. So you report that claim. The carrier is going to provide coverage for it. Same with a car accident. If somebody, you know, fender bender hits you in the bumper, you reported that then right then and there. It's reported to the police typically. So it's all documented. With regards to a professional liability policy, these are what's known as claims made and reported policies. So what that means is you need to have the coverage in place when the error occurred, when the claim was made against you, and ultimately when you report the claim to the carrier. Okay, seems pretty simple, but if you think about it, you could have a practice today, you can make an error tomorrow with a client, and not be sued for it until two years down the road, three years down the road, because it's within the statute of limitations to file a malpractice lawsuit against your firm, against you, the attorney. Okay. So again, as I circle back, it's important to understand this type of coverage. And I'll dive into this a little bit more on the next slide, but you need to have the coverage in place when the error occurred. So example, if you made the error tomorrow, you have to have the coverage today or before, prior, and you also have the, have, to have, have the coverage when the claim was made against you. So if it's two years from now, you need to continuously renew that coverage. 
and when you report it to the, to the carrier, which is pretty much um, typically most of the time is right around the time you find out that you're being sued for a malpractice claim. It's pretty self-explanatory at that point. Okay. So if there's any questions about that, let me know. Cause I know a lot of people do typically have questions with regards to it, but maybe the next slide will help um, clarify any questions. So again, as I mentioned, you need to have the coverage in place when the error occurred, claim made against you, and you report the claim to the carrier. So when you first purchase malpractice insurance, you have an effective date for your policy. But the first year you buy the insurance, you also are provided what's known as your retroactive date. Okay. So if you started your practice in, let's say, 2015, and you have continuously renewed your coverage each year up until today, your retroactive date would be dating back to the year 2015, meaning any errors that have occurred in the past six years, five and a half years, you, you would be covered for as long as you're still maintaining that coverage. Okay, so you, hopefully that makes sense to, to everybody. You'll see here I said claims triggered before this date are not covered. So let's just use the example that January 1st, 2015, you bought coverage, but you were practicing the year prior in 2014. If there is an error that occurred, let's say November of 2014, and they filed a claim against you in June of 2015, so now you have the coverage and you report it to the carrier, the carrier is going to deny that coverage because the error occurred prior to you having the insurance, right? Pretty, pretty simple. Uh, so that's how that works. Big question with regards to that is, can I change carriers? Because a lot of people feel like they get, they're being held to that specific carrier because of this type of coverage. You can absolutely change carriers. I don't typically recommend you to change carriers every year. Um, it's just not, it doesn't look good on, on paper when you're reporting it to a new carrier that, hey, I've switched four different times in the last four years. But you do have the ability to change carriers. If you ever do, you want to make sure that new carrier is picking up your retroactive date always. That's got to, that has to be the number one question if you ever switch carriers. Because what you do not want to do is buy a new policy starting over with new coverage, because then you're basically losing any prior coverage that you purchased. Okay, so let's, let's continue. So who is insured? I'll just kind of blow through this. Everybody within the firm, okay? You can see I have a question mark next to all these. The answer is yes to all of this, right? All the attorneys, partners, if you're, if you're um, you know, an equity partner, of course. If you're an attorney within the firm, absolutely. If you're a secretary, yes, you're still covered even though most things are being reported against the attorney, because anything that comes out is being signed off by an attorney, employees are covered, um, or non-attorney employees, I should call them. Former employees, yes, for the time that they worked at your practice while under the policy. So if they were for, there for two years and you had coverage during that period of time, and there's a claim that arises after they left, they would be covered under your policy for the time that they worked there for two years if that error occurred during that time, of course. Same thing with of counsel and independent contractors. That's important to know because this has become more common, probably more than, than I feel like before. 
So they are covered within the policy. You obviously want to make sure your carrier is aware if you do hire an off counsel or an independent contractor. Okay. So let's continue. So as I mentioned before, right, the, the dreaded COVID-19, the coronavirus that we are still dealing with to date. Um, unfortunately, I have to, I, you know, I, want, I wanted to bring this up. I was thinking about this slide, thinking, you know, everybody's kind of burnt out from COVID-19, how it's affected their, their lives dramatically in many different ways. But I wanted to touch on this because I do feel like in the coming years, the malpractice insurance, those claims that I mentioned, are going to look a little bit different, some of those statistics, because of, of COVID-19, right? We feel like there's going to be claims that arise at a higher level due to statute of limitations with the courts closing and um, really more early on last year when you, you know, law firms had to work from home that may have not been used to that, things of that sort. So that goes with all of those, the pending litigation, um, any type of different deadlines, there's a fear that there's gonna be an increase in claims because of that. The other thing I mentioned before, dabbling, right? We definitely know for a fact that some even clients of ours, they took on different areas of practice during this past year, during the, the pandemic year, because of you know loss of potential revenue, loss of clients, things of that sort. So they started doing other types of areas of practice that they would have probably not have done before. Right. So again, there's a fear that with that comes potential errors and claims. Okay. Um, and, and then the last one is again, monetarily, that firms that let's say were not being paid by clients, but they needed to because again, their revenues were down because of coronavirus for many different reasons. So now they're more subject to file lawsuits against their. Um, excuse me, against their clients for fees, okay? We can tell you, or I can tell you that it's reported about 60% of the time when you sue a client for fees, there's usually a counterclaim, about a 60% chance there's going to be a counterclaim suit against you suing them for fees. Again, carriers know this, so they are not, they're not, they are not fond of firms that sue clients for fees, naturally. Okay, so I'm not telling you how to run your business. I'm just giving you the facts that that is a potential cause that has occurred over this past uh, pandemic year. Okay, so um, are all insurance policies the same? No, they are not. As I mentioned to you before, the auto industry and the homeowners, a lot of those policies are are eerily similar, you want to make sure you pick one that is probably more prone to paying claims and filed claims of that sort. But there's a lot of differences between professional liability policies. And here they are. Okay, so deductible options, that's pretty straightforward, but there is what's known as a per claim that's typical in the industry. That means you're paying that claim each time there's a reported claim or excuse me, you're, you're paying that deductible each time there's a reported claim versus aggregate, which many of you are probably familiar with as well. You pay that, that deductible once in that policy year and that's it. You're not paying it each time there's a claim. Now I can tell you most of the time, if you have multiple, especially as a small firm, if you're having multiple claims reported against you in a year, that's either a really bad year or 
you know, you should consider a different type of industry because, you know, that, that two claims in a year is, is, is rough for a small firm. Um, it, you know, like I said, it's, it could be a potentially bad year. Uh, we have seen it, but, you know, nonetheless, the goal is to obviously not have claims or, or minimize the, the risk of them. Then we also have inside and outside the limits. This is a common question that pops up. So most of the time, these policies are defaulted at inside the limits, meaning if your policy is a million dollars in coverage, then your defense coverage, or excuse me, the defense costs and the potential payout to the claimant are all built into that policy. So those defense costs eat away at your limit of liability. So if it costs $100,000 to defend, that means that you have $900,000 to pay out and incur loss versus outside of limits, the carrier, excuse me, the defense costs do not erode your limits. Both times, the carrier is obviously covering this, you know, that's built into the policy, but one erodes the limits, excuse me, erodes the, yeah, excuse, the erodes the limits by the defense costs and the other one does not. Okay. Um, one other big one I want to touch on is consent to settle provision. That's why I have multiple stars next to it. Basically what this is, it's a provision in liability policies that states the insurance company will not settle any claim without your prior consent. Okay. So that hands down, that's built into policies. Every policy written, they need your written consent to settle. Okay. However, here's the difference. Most policies now have what's known as a hammer clause. This hammer clause comes into play if a settlement is offered to your firm, but you decline that settlement offer, right? You don't want to admit guilt uh, or fault, um, or you just simply just don't want to lose the case. So what happens there is if you decline the settlement offer reported for, from the carrier, the carrier then actually has the ability to use that hammer clause and cap your coverage to their original settlement offer. So if you have a million dollar policy and they offer to settle the claim for $200,000 and you say no, and it ends up being a 300, uh, excuse me, if it ends up being a $500,000 paid claim, then you're on the hook for $300,000. The difference between the settlement offer at 200,000 and the total paid claim at 500,000. Okay, so they, they have the ability to cap that. There are carriers that remove this language or do not have this language within their policies. And I can tell you working with the BBA, we have that built in with our program carrier, that language is removed from the policy. So your policy limits are full policy limits. They do not have the hammer clause built in. Okay. Let's just skip down to supplemental coverages. Cause I still want to go through a few, quite a few slides here. Um, supplemental coverages. This is another big difference between carriers between coverages within carriers. You can see here, I listed a few of them. Disciplinary proceedings coverage, that's if a disciplinary was ever made against an attorney within the firm, there's coverage for that. Same with subpoena, if the firm's ever subpoenaed for another case, they the carrier will provide subpoena assistance and a subpoena expert to take that burden off of your hands. Loss of earnings, this is important for a solo small firm. This is if you have to report to court for a reported claim. There's obviously you being out of, of uh, work 
going to a courtroom is not allowing you to have billable hours. So the carriers will pay you back for that lost time. And then network risk coverage, that's cyber coverage. Some carriers, what they're doing now is they're adding supplemental benefits into a, a professional liability policy. But I will tell you, I'm not a big fan of that because it's very watered down language. Again, your professional liability is covering you for legal services that you're rendering to a client. The cyber, what happens in a cyber attack is you may not be rendering legal services. So there's a, there's a high chance that they're gonna de even decline that anyway. So I think it's a lot of fluff within professional liability policies that quite frankly is not helping firms because they falsely believe that they're being covered for cyber coverage within their professional liability when they're really not. Okay, so those are big differences between one carrier and the other because some are gonna offer all of these, some are gonna offer half of them, some are gonna have higher limits for these supplemental coverages versus others that may have lower. So there's a lot of differences to consider here. Big question that I get is what is the appropriate coverage I should have for my firm? These are a couple of notes that I come, came up with. I help my best to work through that question because it is a tough question to answer. Obviously the dollar value of transactions or case that you work on, right? That's, that's, a, that's obviously a big one. So if you have multi-million dollar real estate transactions or estate work or plaintiff, then you know we have to assess that at that point and what the actual claim can be. Typically, it's rare for a um, malpractice claim to um, be so bad that it's a full payout for the for a mistake. Because um, a lot of times these are obviously getting defended, so the defense counsel can defend that claim down. Um, so which, you know, brings to the next one, the cost of defending a claim, you know, defense counsels charge no less than you do for billable hours. So, you know, that has to be factored in. And then the, obviously the big one is the value of assets you want to protect, right? You know, that's all that insurance comes down to is, you know, there's something catastrophic that happens, something bad that has happened. I want to protect myself individually. I want to protect my family. I want to protect everything I've worked for, you know, my assets. So that's something else to consider. And then potential billable hours lost. Um, I'd put that probably at the lower of the categories versus the others, but still something to think about. Premiums. You know, what causes them to be high? The million dollar question that we typically get. Here's a laundry list of, of items. Um, so I'll just kind of skip to dabbling. We already touched on that. That's handling different types of areas of practice, not being a specialist in, in a category or two. Step rating. Um, you know, this is more important for when you're first starting your practice or first starting coverage. Step rating is what happens is your first year of coverage for malpractice insurance is your least expensive because the chances of, you know, starting your practice, making an error, being sued for that error all within the first year is very low. The actuaries have figured that out. It's very low. So what happens is each year you renew, each year your firm is practicing, there's higher chance, you're increasing your clientele. So there's a step rating that goes in there with your premiums. That happens for the first five years of your practice for the insurance. You'll see an increase in your 
malpractice premiums. All right. Uh, areas of practice, like I mentioned, based on those charts. So, uh, you know, a real estate attorney is going to pay a lot more than a criminal defense attorney firm or uh, just a defense firm in general or wills estate trust. Like I said, you know, they're seeing higher premiums. They're going to pay higher than, you know, the average uh, law practice out there nowadays. Okay. And then a couple other things, you know, making sure you're using specific retainer agreements that helps bring the cost down. Same with having those docket control systems in place, brings the cost down. They like seeing those. And then, as I mentioned, fee suits, avoiding them. Um, they do not want to see a, a practice suing clients for fees because they know that there's going to be a counterclaim lawsuit from that. All right, so I'll just, I'll just blow by this. Um, so the insurance application, if anyone is, you know, newer here, starting a practice, thinking about starting a practice, you know, it's pretty straightforward. The application can be daunting at first because they are fairly long. Um, they've gotten longer with additional forms based on areas of practice, because like I mentioned, law firms have been evolving, not one is the same. So now they're looking for more transactional values and things of that sort that they haven't asked in the past because firms are, are walk, working on things that are larger um, than ever before, especially smaller firms. So this is just a breakdown of, of items that they ask for in an application. Liability carriers, what should you look for? So again, I kind of, I mentioned that it's very important to be with the appropriate carrier, appropriate coverage. So these are things that you want to make sure that you're looking for when you, when reviewing carriers, there's a lot of carriers out there. It's competitive, right? Which is always a good thing because that keeps, that keeps rates down. Um, but I will tell you, there's definitely carriers that firms should avoid or other firms should be more attracted to, um, regardless of price. Um, it's one of those things where I firmly, firmly believe that you get what you pay for in this type of coverage, you know, cause I can tell you right now, and I'm experiencing it with a couple of my clients is, you know, reporting a claim is a very scary, daunting task and experience. Um, you know, so you want to make sure that that carrier and, and even the broker, they know how to work this. They can walk you through it, make you feel more comfortable um, because it is a very scary situation, right? Things are great when your claim's free for as long as you are. Um, you know, carriers are going to give you the best rates, but when it comes down to it, you want to make sure you're with a strong carrier who's going to pay that claim, walk you through it, make it easier for you. That's the whole point of this, right? You're paying thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars for your insurance. You want to make sure you're fully protected here. So experience, is, is obviously number one. AM best rating, if you look at that, that's basically working off their financials and their financial strength, meaning they can pay claims. So you want to look at that. You want to go with A or higher. So A rating or higher. Obviously, their experience with claims handling, who some of their panel counsel is defending those claims. Distribution, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is they obviously collect premiums and the premiums they collect, they put toward, they have their hands in different types of insurances, right? So, you know, that they're not just 
doing malpractice insurance for law firms, because if there's a year that all of a sudden law firms are sued all over the place, guess what's going to happen with that carrier? They're going to have to either raise their rates dramatically or pull out of the industry completely. So when a carrier is working with multiple different types of insurance um, industries, right, they're handling auto, they're doing workers comp, things of like that, there's different loss ratios that could be more valuable in a different segment. And then that allows them to provide better rates in their malpractice insurance or what have you. Um, so you want a, a carrier that has distribution to different types of, of industries. And then the last one is risk management services. You know, are they providing you with up-to-date information? Are they providing you with a claims hotline? Like I mentioned, a very scary situation that you, you may think that there's going to be a claim from a client who walked walked out, you know, cursed you out and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sue you. You know, what are your steps there? All right. Do you try to handle it yourself or do you call the claims hotline? They'll walk you through it. So things like that are very, very important to understand. Okay. Um, so I did have one question before I touch on cyber liability. And the question goes back to appropriate coverage, uh, a newly established solo practice. Um, you know, what should they consider? You know, what's an appropriate, decent initial coverage? I can tell you right now that most small firms, you know, one to three attorney firms have at least or worked their way to $1 million in coverage. The most common that we see in that space is a million dollar policy with a $5,000 deductible. And $1 million might sound like a lot, but in the scheme of things, it's really not, right? Because the defense costs that occur, the potential lawsuit that could occur, and the other example is if you compare a $1 million policy to versus a $500,000 policy, so you have half the coverage, I can tell you right now, it's not half the cost. So if a $1 million policy is $1,600 for a, a brand new established firm, it might be $1,300 for $500,000 in coverage. So you know, those would be the two that I would say consider um, I never advise any of my clients to consider anything less than those two, because it's just not financially smart to, to do that. Um, even if you think you're the lowest risk possible, mistakes happen, you want to make sure that you're fully covered. Okay, so hopefully that answers your, your question. Um, so let's dive into, you know, we still have about 23 minutes here for the webinar. I know I'm blowing through this quickly. So I'll take a breath, calm down here. Um, and like I said, if there are any other questions, please feel free to, to put them in the Q&A. So let's dive into cyber liability. So I mentioned earlier, this is the agenda. Another quick coronavirus COVID-19 update. Just be weary of some email scams that we are seeing out there, all right? Some of these were a little bit more prevalent early on uh, especially emails that are coming from the CDC or pretending to be, I should say. Um, you know, they're trying to get people at a vulnerable time to click on information, right? And, you know, you can even, number four is probably prevalent now than ever before when I originally, you know, put this together. Um, offers for vaccinations, right? A lot of people seem to obviously want the vaccination, which is great, but that again, comes with potential 
you know, scammers and hackers trying to gain access to your email at a vulnerable time to get access to your computer through an email about vaccinations. Okay. So, uh, you know, just a quick note about that. Unfortunately, we live in a world nowadays where you kind of have to be sadly skeptical about almost everything. Um, you know, so this is another, another added bonus, um, unfortunate bonus that we have to consider. All right. So why law firms? You know, why is cyber liability important for my, for my firm? Why are law firms getting hacked? Here, this is exactly why, right? You, the law firm, have rich collection of confidential information, whether that's social security numbers, information, you know, intel about um, a business, a client of yours, you know, mergers and acquisition, things of that sort. You have all types of information that nobody else has, okay? The closest thing would probably be, you know, like an accounting firm is gonna have financials and social security. Um, but you would have sometimes even more intel than all. Oh, you're going to have more intel than they would, especially like I mentioned, business-wise, mergers and acquisitions, things of that sort. So that's a big one. Um, so hackers lick their chops with that because they need they need information. They need uh, they need uh, confidential information to make it worthwhile. The other big one item is lack of technology sophistication. You know, no shots to anybody on this this webinar, but unfortunately. Most law firms are not tech savvy. It's just simply put, uh, you know, again, so, so hackers know this. So they are now attacking, they have been attacking law firms, especially small law firms in this space because they know of the low sophistication around their IT structures. Okay, so there's a lot of security vulnerabilities, as I mentioned there. The other um, item that I mentioned here is, so it's a little outdated, but I said 22% of law firms experience a cyber attack data breach in 2017. I should have updated this. I do have updated information. It stayed around the same. It's increased a little bit. So it's about 25% um, the last time they did this study. And most of these are targeting small businesses. Okay, again, that one to five. So if you remember, I told you, one to five attorney firms make up about 75% of the law firm space. So if you are a hacker, would you go after the 75% or the 25%, right? So it's a numbers game for, for hackers. It's the same, I use the analogy, you know, um, Microsoft Office products and just, off, uh, you know, just Microsoft products in general, you know, many more people, they have a much higher um, market than, Apple products, right? So hackers go after the Microsoft products because there's more people using them. Businesses are using them and things of that sort. So that's why everybody used to say that Apple was more secure. And, you know, you can agree or disagree with that, but they probably are more secure in a certain way, but they're definitely more secure because hackers are less inclined to try to break their codes to get through to their specific softwares. All right. And as I mentioned before, uh, liability insurance does not cover all of your cyber exposure. So that's your professional liability does not cover all your cyber exposure. So again, you know, very important to understand. These are just some, some uh, security gaps that I just put in here to think, you know, where are potential security gaps that I have as a law firm, right? Lost or stolen devices, still, still a big one, probably less 
common now because we're all sitting at home. But most of the time, this was big before when, you know, law firms or attorney, somebody's traveling, they lost their phone, uh, you know, they left their, their computer on an airplane or a train, things like that. Traveling again, wireless access, you know, going to a local Starbucks, using your Wi-Fi at your um, hotel, right? Those are all security vulnerabilities. You know, people have access, can, if anyone can access the same Wi-Fi, so can a hacker, and then they can gain access to your computer through that. So um, the staff training, a lot of people don't think about security gap as a staff, you know, from a staff member, um, but you can have a rogue employee who leaves your firm, takes information, critical information, and then uses it against you. So that is reported and cyber coverage does actually provide coverage for those situations. So that's something important to, to know as well. Um, and kind of similar with insider threats, excuse me one second. Um, we have cloud computing, right? That's a big one nowadays. A lot of firms and just businesses in general and even personal are switching to cloud computing. So there are obviously there's security around that, but then there's also security vulnerabilities. So if you're looking to do that, you know, you really need to um, do your research with regards to that. And then the last two are kind of similar. So lack of encryption with potential passwords and files, and then lack of patching. Patching is just simply put is a um, is updating your software, right? So for bugs and, and things like that, you, if you have like an Apple iPhone or just any type of software, you'll see, hey, uh, you know, there's a new version, you know, please update now. That's where the patching of a software comes from. And if you're not familiar with encryption, let me just kind of circle back there. If you're not familiar with encryption, um, that's basically just, you know, scrambling data so that only authorized parties can understand that information, right? So it takes readable data and alters it so it appears random. That's all that really is. So if you ever look at behind the scenes, like what an encrypted file looks like, it just looks like binary code, a bunch of different digits. Um, but, you know, when you have access to it and type in a password, it unencrypts it and then it will show you the, the file or files that you have in there. Let's, let's, uh, let's continue because I do have quite a bit of slides that I still want to get to. I'll blow through a few of these, but these are important to obviously understand. You know, if you are concerned with cyber attacks, which unfortunately everybody is at this, at this time of our lives, uh, here's a couple few or a few items to improve your security. Um, so number one, all right, this is, this is becoming big, uh, very, very common nowadays. So enable two-factor authentication, also known as dual-factor authentication, okay? We've been using this, and I'm sure everybody uses this for your banks. When you log into your bank account, whether it's on a computer or even on your phone, uh, it'll ask you, for your password, username and password, you type that in, but then it'll go to the next page and then it's gonna send you a code to your email or to your phone through a text or call you and then give you a digit. Typically it's like a six digit code uh, or passcode to type in to get to your file. Okay, so that's dual factor authentication. 
very, very secure way now, nowadays to protect your files uh, and accounts. So, um, you know, that's, that's a big one. That's why I put that as number one. Number two is update your DNS settings. Most of you are probably sitting there thinking like, what the heck does that even mean? Basically, uh, it, it blocks malicious websites from your browser. So that's what DNS settings is. I get that at in a second, but in a nutshell, it's blocking malicious websites. So if you try to go or, or an employee tries to go to a, a site, not thinking about it, it would be blocked if your settings were set up correctly. Okay. Um, this is different than blocking like a social media site like Facebook. This is code to recognize that a site could be malicious. So it's blocking uh, an employee from gaining access to that, that site. The next one is similar, removing administrative privileges to your computers. Okay, so this basically de uh, designates an administrator. So only that administrator would be uh, have the approval to okay certain downloads or, or what have you software to your computer systems so that an employee does not click a, a button by accident or try to download something that could have a virus or be infected. The next one is very simple, configure automatic software updates. So as I mentioned before, lack of patching, that's where this comes in, right? Having your, your, your computer system do automatic software updates, or if you check you know, each day, if you don't rely on, if you don't wanna rely on automatic software updates, you can do it yourself but make sure you're doing it on a daily basis. Um, you know, I'm kind of dating myself, but if we remember the DLA Piper incident, you know, where they got hacked and breached and all their systems were down and literally, uh, you know, they had signs in their offices telling employees not to use the computers. Uh, it was a really bad situation. That was due to them not doing a patch, a software update to one of their softwares. And literally a hacker was able to gain access because of this, this lack of patch. Um, you know, so, so a significant situation there. And then the last one I have here, you know, kind of jokingly with the exclamation point, but in all seriousness, you know, buy the cyber insurance. It's inexpensive, especially now. It's inexpensive and it covers you literally from A to Z in these situations. So as I mentioned, you know, it's a very scary situation to go through a professional liability claim. It could be even a more of a scarier situation with a cyber breach, because at least a professional liability, you know who's suing you, right? There, there was a client, they're a physical person. The cyber breach, you don't know where they came from, you don't know who they are, they're demanding something you've never seen before. It's a very scary situation. So, um, you know, the insurance helps in those, those situations as well. All right, so I'm going to skip through that. This is the DNS settings that I mentioned, you know, so it just translates human, human um, host names, like I've mentioned here, www.bostonbar.org into computer readable. So your IP address, if you're familiar with that, to a, a digit. All right, so you can block malicious websites in your settings. So definitely something to check or check with your IT individual or team to to do that for you again not going to to go through these because i just mentioned that so this is an important slide here okay these are all different types of insurances that your firm could have um you know so you know your property general liability crime um 
we put kidnap and ransom on here. That's not very common, but it nonetheless, it, it is still out there. And then, you know, which is your professional liability. Okay. So those are all different types of common coverages that a firm has, but you can see here, most of them, if not all of them are not covering anything within a cyber liability policy. Okay. A lot of these are, you know, tangible items, property, right? Tangible property. There's just no language around it. Uh, once upon a time, crime policies used to cover, and we'll, we'll dive into this, but they used to cover, you know, like social engineering or wire fraud coverage. And some may still have some of that language in there, but a lot of them are excluding that coverage in there as well, because especially a wire fraud transaction, what happens there is they view it as you willingly gave that wire to the wrong person. You didn't know it was the wrong person, but you willingly did that versus crime. You know, somebody physically stole something, you know, within your office or, or money somewhere. Um, so there's intent there. So that's how they view that. Okay. Next slide is extremely, extremely important. It discusses what exactly is cyber insurance coverage? You know, what does that mean to me? I've heard of it. Um, you know, I always joke, I have, I, I get a lot of calls about cyber liability insurance. And a lot of times they ask, you know, what is it? <laughs> what is it exactly covering? Why do I need it? So this in a nutshell is what's very important. Um, you know, when I put this together, so there are two buckets that I break out cyber insurance coverage and costs to. The first one is what we call first party coverages. So it's the two boxes to the left, okay? The first party we would say is basically is money being spent from day one of a potential, from a breach, basically. So, you know, you need to notify clients. So there's notification costs. You may need to, to provide credit monitoring to clients. That's dollar, you know, from dollar one. Um, you're going to definitely have to investigate the situation. You know, where are they? Where are the hackers? How bad was the breach? Are they still in your system? Et cetera, et cetera, right? That's costly. You're going to have business interruption or potentially business interruption. If your systems are shut down for X amount of hours or days, there's lost revenue there. Um, you know, even repairing your software, your systems, things like that, that's, that, that's costly. Cyber extortion is the number one breach that we, we still see today. Um, you know, that somebody basically is extorting you. They have access to your system and they're threatening you for some dollar amount to be able to, you know, give that system back to you or, or get out of it. Um, they're either willing, they're going to threaten you with an amount of money to pay them or they'll release all your clients information or delete it or something. Um, and then social engineering is the wire is mainly the wire fraud coverage and situation there. So all of those would be covered under your policy. Okay. So again, that those add up to be very costly. The second bucket is third party costs, which would really be your claims, right? A claim that's filed from a client of yours for a breach of their information that, that was out there. And then, um, you know, if there's like an investigation, if there's penalties and fines from like the uh, state attorney general, 
that's pretty rare nowadays, but that that's still covered within your policy. The big one is claims from clients for a breach of their information. Okay, so both buckets different, but they're all covered within a cyber liability policy. All right, I left this on here, but it's a training video of one of the carriers I work with. It's really good to um, to watch this. It's specifically around wire fraud, you know, how people get duped into it and, you know, what the hackers are doing to be able to get to it because they're very sophisticated. Obviously do not have time to show any portion of that clip. Um, but again, I wanted to leave that in here because if there are questions around it, I'd be more than happy to provide you all with, um, you know, the link to this. So I'm probably going to skip, oh, I'll just touch on this. What's not covered by cyber? I mean, it's, these are all pretty straightforward, right? Um, you know, theft of IP or trade secrets, you know, brand damage, future revenue, um, you know, state attacks, uh, you know, national state attacks from like a terrorist. There's no coverage specifically around that physical damage. Again, that's going to be under your general liability or property policy. So let's dive into a couple of these claim statistics. Um, there's a few slides that I have with regards to this. And again, if anybody here has any questions, please feel free to ask me because I feel like I'm talking at a mile a minute here, trying to get through all of my information that I, I think is very important to fully understand. But nonetheless, um, you know, I want to make sure that if anybody has specific questions, they they ask appropriately. So here is kind of referencing what I mentioned to you before about, you know, why, you know, law firms and, and small law firms. Well, this study is specifically from a net diligence. They do a claim study every year now on cyber attacks on uh, it's, it's on an industry basis. They do by revenue size, which is this form here. Um, you know, they encapsulate a lot. So what they do is this study comes from multiple carriers that are providing cyber coverage to different industries and to different uh, clients of theirs. And then they gather this information and they put these reports together. So it's, it's, a, it's a very nice report. It's long, it's detailed. Um, you know, so I tried to summarize some of the important items here. So this just talks about, if you can see, uh, you know, your nano revenue, which is less than 50 million in revenue size, makes up 53% of the claims that they've seen in the last four years. Okay, so this dates to the end of 2019. So this is the most recent report. It's a 2020 net diligence study, which came out the end of 2020. All right, so um, you can see here that more than half come from very small practices and small businesses in general. So kind of similar to law firms with professional liability. You can see here percentage of claims by date of event. Okay, so 2018 makes up a big portion of that. So that, that was a bad year of, of uh, cyber claims. So it did come down some for 2019, which is a good sign. So that means that people are putting and businesses are putting in security around their practices to protect themselves and their clients information. So that makes sense that it has, 
it has gone down, um, but it's not going away. Let's put it that way. This one here again is over a four. I did a four year. So I think it's important to do over a time period versus just one year. You can see here that healthcare has actually taken the lead at 28% and professional services is right behind them at 21%. So they're making up your, so, you know, you as a law firm, an attorney practice, you're in the professional services sec sector there. Uh, so you're making up almost a quarter of the claims that are being reported for cyber. I can tell you the study from the prior year, professional services was actually number one in claims um, at about 24% and um, healthcare was actually down. So now they flipped. So healthcare has taken a, a, a bigger leap over you know, this past year and, and 2019, uh, healthcare did have quite a bit of, of claims as you can probably imagine. And then uh, cause of loss, right? Where are these losses coming from? There's a, there's a lot of them, uh, um, you know, so I basically narrowed it down to the top three. Ransomware, which I mentioned to you before, is that's the cyber extortion. And social engineering would be your wire fraud, which has seen a significant increase over the last couple of years. If I looked at this report three or four years ago, social engineering would probably be one of those small percentages. Now they are quickly, they've quickly become number two. And um, just from the prior year, they've actually increased by 5%. So this study last year was 15%. This study this year is 20%. So that just gives you an idea of how much it's increased in just the past year. Again, I can attest to this because I see it on a daily basis. There are a lot of claims coming from social engineering and the wire transfer fraud scenarios. And then hacker, which is very broad term, but they're, they're making up about 12% of the um, the items there, which would be you know kind of like your emails and, and things like that, gaining access. Uh, this just gives you an idea of average cost by year for ransom. So I, I, I again brought up ransomware because it's a hot topic. So you can see there's been an increase in the ransomware amount, and then there's also been an increase in the incident costs, which is basically means it's the aggregate total of all types of costs and expenses associated with the, the incident itself. So both have gone up dramatically. All right, now we're about one minute past one o'clock. So I just have a couple, a couple different, um, a couple slides here, and then we can finish the program. I do not see any updated quotes at this point in time, or excuse me, updated questions at this point in time. So let me just finish a couple of these these um, these slides, and we can call it a, an afternoon here. So there has been an increase in demand demand and drivers for cyber insurance. So demand is obviously claims that are are coming out there. Um, you know, additional capacity. The you know there there are sublimits built into these policies, like I mentioned, the wire fraud and and things like that. So they're adding they're adding pieces to this, but there are some challenges around that as well. I won't dive into that, but if you have questions, I can go into more detail. And then drivers around cyber insurance is because of the increased education. So all of you here on a webinar now know where claims are coming from. You know, they're, 
you're, you're, there's concern around cyber. You may have heard and seen news about cyber related events, right? And then there's privacy notification laws in each state. So I do have that on the next slide. I'm not gonna go through that, but you know, your state alone has rules when there are, um, you know, it, when there is a breach with clients information. Okay. And then just to kind of break it down, the insurance market today for cyber, there's a lot of carriers. Okay. Which you might think is a good thing to me. It's probably, it's not really a good thing because what's happened is it's disjointed. And a lot of those carriers that are trying to write cyber coverage, trying to grow their book of business, they're going to be out of business in a couple of years because they're not prepared for the claims that are arising from it. I can tell you right now, I read an article over the weekend about cyber premiums increasing from about 20 to 50% in this year alone in 2021. And again, I'm already seeing it from carriers. There has been a significant increase in the premiums over the last year, two years for cyber insurance. So, um, you know, a lot of those carriers are now either trying to increase their rates or pull out of the market completely. All right. And then just a quick idea so everybody knows what the cost looks like and the process looks like. So if you are interested, obviously contact me, but, you know, we'll review any questions. There's an application process. It's about two pages. It's, it's actually pretty short. And then for a million dollars in coverage, same thing with a million, a $5,000 deductible. On average, you're looking at about $1,000 annually for a small firm, you know, a one to five attorney firm will increase the larger you get there. All right. Um, so with that, I obviously I want to thank everybody for attending, letting me go four minutes over my allotted time. Here's my contact information. Please, please feel free to shoot me an email, give me a call. I'm around uh, today. I'm available. You know, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to obviously answer any specific questions that anybody has. Um, so, you know, with that, I want to thank everybody and hopefully you have a, a nice afternoon and, and it looks like it's going to be warming up these next couple of days, which is, which is also very nice. So thank you.